Welcome listeners to our short series of podcasts ahead of SAM 22. In this podcast, Dr. Carly Easton is going to be interviewing a number of our plenary abstract presenters uh, who you'll get a chance to see at the annual meeting if you are there in person or if you're listening after the meeting, please head to sam.org for all the details of their presentations. These interviews were conducted across several sessions, so do note there will be some variations in the microphone quality across the different interviews. And here's Dr. Easton. Hey listeners, I'm Carly Easton from University of Arkansas, and I'm representing the Virtual Presence Committee. I'm excited to have this interview to talk about trauma and pediatrics. I'm here today with Dr. Jim Holmes, who is Professor and Executive Vice Chair for the Department of Emergency Medicine at University of California, Davis. He is also the Director of the UC Davis KL2 Research Training Program and their Emergency Medicine Research Fellowship, and has also been past president of SAEM. Welcome, Jim. Thank you very much. Uh, glad to be here. So it looks like you'll be presenting the first plenary abstract of the annual meeting, which will be Wednesday morning. And your abstract is titled Validation of the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network Abdominal Trauma Prediction Role. Can you tell me a little bit about this project? Sure. Um, it's an honor to be the first abstract at the meeting. Um, and it really is kind of a culmination of, of my work that I started back in 1995. And so I've spent a lot of my career trying to um, identify the appropriate methods to evaluate children after blunt abdominal trauma. And back in 2013, we did a large multi-center study where we derived a clinical prediction rule to identify children who are at very low risk for intra-abdominal injury that would um, undergo acute intervention, um, such that if they didn't have any of the variables present, that there was really no uh, risk for them and that they should not get an abdominal CT scan. Um, and so we derived that on a large sample of about 12,000 patients. This work is uh, uh, that we'll present on Wednesday is a multi-center study um, where we enrolled a large number of kids at six centers, uh, about 7,500 uh, patients ultimately. And we validated that clinical prediction rule. And it, I don't wanna spill the beans, but it had um, very good test characteristics. That's exciting. A uh, sample size of you know 7,500 kids is quite a bit, especially for a pediatric study. Um, what challenges did you face or what was surprising for you as you went along in this project? Well, I think, you know, the study, we've, we've done similar studies like this before, and we've, you know, myself and my co-PI, uh, Dr. Nate Cooperman, you know, have a lot of experience doing multi-center studies. And, and so kind of the issues that pop up with multi-center studies, we, you know, it wasn't anything unusual. So it was kind of the typical stuff that you expect. The one issue that came up that was unexpected was COVID. Um, and so as everybody probably remembers, back when COVID first happened, um, emergency department volumes really dropped. That was especially true for pediatric emergency department volumes, um, especially pediatric trauma, because, you know, kids, kids weren't out as much. Um, kids weren't uh, in school. They were doing a lot of them were doing homeschool. And so the injuries that were uh, the injury rate in kids 
dropped precipitously back in March 2020. And to be honest, um, looking at our data, they really didn't come back to pre-COVID le uh, levels up until maybe the summer of 2021, which was kind of right before we finished the study. Now, the good news is, is that we had um, plenty of sample size for, for our work. So we, we did meet our sample size, but um, it was a little, uh, there was a period of time where we were very concerned that maybe we wouldn't meet our sample size for the abdominal trauma study um, because, because of COVID. But, but we, we quickly realized that we were gonna be okay with that. And fortunately we made it, but it was, you know, it was it was interesting. We we retrained at least here at UC Davis. We retrained our research coordinators to do callbacks of patients that had COVID testing because we weren't enrolling patients into studies. We we put you know uh, our our studies on hold and we retrained our research coordinators to do kind of COVID related stuff until we ultimately got things back to normal. That's a good idea. We, uh, I think research kind of came to a halt everywhere. And so we had to be creative with what we would do with all of those resources. Um, and I think the, the reduction in volume is true too. Like the adult volumes re rebounded pretty quickly um, at the end of 2020, but pediatrics seemed to really lag for several months behind that. So I'm sure it was a quite a challenge for you guys. Yeah, it was it was an interesting opportunity. I, you know, if I had my um, if I had my wish, we would never had COVID. But you know, it obviously had some um, interesting aspects that were uh, that we had to all deal with. Agreed. Do you have any advice as a more kind of senior level researcher? Do you have any advice for someone who might be starting their career or thinking about starting a career in research? I mean, there, there's a couple things I always tell people that that if they are interested or trying to start out a career on research and, and um, it, it, you know, you have to be, you have to do something that you really have passion about. So you really have to study something that you, that you are interested in, you're passionate about, that you're, you'd be willing to come in on your days off and work on, um, or be interested potentially maybe waking up in the middle of the night and coming in and enrolling a patient or, you know, something of that nature, something that really gets your blood flowing that you, you want to solve that question. Um, and, and I think that's, that's really important. And, and, you know, if you want to be a funded researcher as well, you kind of have to pick something that you're interested in and somebody, some funding agency is interested in it as well. Um, and so that's key. But the, the second big issue I always uh, tell people is that you need, especially people starting out is you need good mentorship. And I've been uh, really fortunate here at UC Davis in that um, Dr. Nate Cooperman was um, joined here back, uh, I think during my second year of residency and really mentored me during my residency. And then um, when I started uh, as faculty um, and really helped me get my research career going. And, and, and I've, I, I'm very indebted to him for um, all of his mentorship. And it, it's really kind of impacted on me to kind of then pay it forward. And I think that's kind of how I ultimately got involved with starting our research fellowship here and, and got involved in junior faculty mentoring and ultimately became our director of our KL2 program. And it's something I really enjoy in my career is men mentoring the junior faculty. But it, but it's key when you're wanting to start a junior, I mean, start a uh, start a research career as, as a resident or junior faculty to find great mentorship. And it can be difficult at times. 
Yeah, that's really good advice. I think it's it's very overwhelming to for like a, a new person starting out in research as a resident or fellow or a new attending to look at someone like you who's you know been doing this for a long time, but and you've accomplished so much and to say, how am I going to get to that point in my career? And I do think mentorship has a lot to do with that because if you have someone that can guide you along the way, you can um, make a lot of progress. Um, so it's really cool. All the things that you've done. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's, and it's been something, you know, back in May of 1997, when I intended, uh, uh, attended my second SAM meeting ever, I got to spend maybe 30 minutes with John Marks. Um, and for those that don't know, John Marks is an, uh, one of kind of the fathers of, of emergency medicine and, and very involved in kind of developing and leading SAM um, in its early years. And, you know, I couldn't believe as a resident that he would take 30 minutes out of his busy SAM day and spend and talk to me about a career in academic emergency medicine. I was just so impressed um, that he would do that. And I, I've tried to do things like that over my career as well. And, and you know, kind of as much as possible help start junior people in academic emergency medicine um, if they're interested. Yeah, that's really important. So what do you see moving forward as next steps for this prediction rule? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting. I just um, I just wrote the manuscript uh, last week. It's it's mostly done. And um, I, I, I was able to write it because uh, I had a period of time where I was isolated with COVID. Um, and oh, no. so, yeah, it was it was uh, unfortunate that uh, the family got COVID, but um, I actually wrote the manuscript during it. So um, I will present the data at SAM and um, finalize the, the manuscript after SAM and then submit it. And then I think we'll um, look at trying to implement um, the kind of work to help implement the rule. Um, and then, you know, I, I still, you know, I study pediatric abdominal trauma and, and kind of one of the other projects that we're working on is, is should fast exam be used in kids with trauma? So we can identify those patients that shouldn't get CT scan. And then there's kind of this intermediate group that exactly what the workup should be um, is still unclear. And one of the issues that's unclear is about whether or not to use FAST um, or not. And so we're we're hoping to ultimately do a multi-center study, looking randomized control trial, basically looking at FAST in children to see, kind of determine the utility of FAST um, in kind of that intermediate risk population. Well, I'm really looking forward to whatever you find out about that, because that will definitely affect a lot of people's practice. Um, and I'm also looking forward to hearing what you have to say at, at the annual meeting about this prediction rule and um, seeing the data. And um, I really appreciate you joining me today to talk about your abstract and um, excited to see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, it'll be great to see everybody. We I, just a, just a little bit of information. Our attend our registration at SAM is really going well, and I think there's a lot of desire for people to meet in person and see everybody face to face. And so it's going to be very exciting to see everybody in person. It will. Well, thanks again, and I'll see you there. All right. Thank you very much. Hello, this is Carly Easton, one of the Virtual Presence Committee members, and I'm here to continue our interviews with our plenary abstract presenters for SAEM 22. I'd like to welcome Jared Lassner, second year medical student at University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. 
Welcome to the podcast, Jared. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today to talk about research. So Jared will be presenting the abstract titled, Are Residents at For-Profit Affiliated Emergency Medicine Programs Underpaid? on Thursday at the annual meeting. Jared, can you give me a brief overview of this project? Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, So we were interested in the growth of for-profit affiliated uh, residency programs in emergency medicine. And so what that means is that hospitals affiliated with for-profit hospitals opening these programs. And we looked at two things. We wanted to see the growth of these programs over time. So how many are there? And we wanted to see if the resident salaries differ at these programs. And we found that they have grown over the past 20 years uh, by a large margin, and that they also pay their residents less. Interesting. And I also want to say, you know, congratulations being a medical student presenting a plenary abstract. That is really cool, and you should be really proud. Um, how did you, yeah, how did you and your research team become interested in this uh, project? I actually became interested in this uh, topic prior to med- medical school. I was actually interviewing at medical schools. And um, one school that I was interviewing at had a hospital that was affiliated with a for-profit institution. And I was telling one of my friends in medical school about this. And he was basically telling me that that was a bad thing and that I shouldn't go there. Um, And I did some research and I couldn't find anything. There was really no research on that topic. Um, But I kind of forgot about that for a little while up until the jobs report came out for emergency medicine, which I'm sure you all know about. And then that became a huge topic. And there is still no research on it. And so I thought this might be a good opportunity to answer my question I had several years ago, which is, are these programs different? And how do you think this affects residents or how, why is this important um, to the generalizable knowledge? It's important for several reasons. Um, It's important to residents because residents, given the nature of the match, they really have no um, negotiating power in terms of salaries. And so it is very easy for programs to uh, take advantage and pay as little as possible. There's essentially no oversight in the process at all. But it's also not only important for residents, it's important for really anyone who's employed as an emergency medicine physician in America because this is affecting the jobs market. Um, there's a massive proliferation of residency programs, and it, it's going to be affecting everyone very soon. Yeah, this um, all of the recent challenges with um, these types of programs and the workforce report and the recent match um, – It's just been, there's, it's been eye-opening over the last uh, several years. What challenges did your team face or did you find anything that was particularly surprising as you went along in the project? Uh, There's always a lot of uh, challenges in research. Uh, This entire project actually arose out of a challenge. Um, We had worked on our prior project looking at the difference in board exam pass rates between for-profit and non-profit affiliated programs. And we originally wanted to include the EM data in that project. We were looking at IM, PEDS, um, and surgery. And we asked the ABEM for the data um, on pass rates, and they wouldn't give it to us. So we actually had to start an entire new project. And we were thinking about different um, different areas where these programs might differ. And that's how you came up with salary. So I, I think you're always going to face a lot of roadblocks in research, and it's all about making the best of it and being creative and coming up with new ideas. Yeah, I agree. Even when you feel like you have everything laid out perfectly, you know, you'll always come up with, come up against some challenge that makes you either rethink your entire project or make, you know, different plans um, and adjust things as you go. So it's good to be flexible. Exactly. What advice uh, do you have for other medical students who might be considering getting into research or starting a research project? Um, 
what, what kind of advice do you have for them? My biggest advice is to not be afraid to start your own project. I think a lot of medical students fall into the pattern of reaching out to um, attendings and asking if there's any projects they could help with. And they might get assigned a project that they're not very passionate about or doing a role that they might not be enjoying. And then they walk away saying, like, wow, I hate research. I think you really shouldn't be afraid to come up with your own idea. And then instead of emailing a physician and saying, like, how can I help you? You can say, here's this idea. Are you able to help me with this? Um, and I think it results in a project that you're passionate about. Um, you know what you're doing and you're going to be proud of your, your work. Yeah, and I think uh, even seasoned researchers would agree with that. You know, you want to be doing something that you're passionate about and not just checking that box of research in your CV. Um, you want to make sure it's something that you're interested in to keep you coming back to it. Exactly. What do you see or does your team have any next steps in related to this project? Um, we're still kind of finalizing this project, so we haven't really talked about next steps yet. But I really think the next step is going to be survey-based data, um, really surveying residents across these different program types and seeing if subjective differences and experiences differ. Uh, I think that's really the next step here. Interesting. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Well, thanks, Jared, for joining me in this interview and for sharing all of these um, details about your project. It's really interesting. And I'm sure the SAN community will be excited to come and listen to your presentation on Thursday at the annual meeting. Thanks so much for having me. For our second plenary presenter, let's get into another really common complaint, chest pain. I'd like to introduce Dr. James O'Neill, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Atrium Wake Forest Baptist Health in North Carolina. How are you doing today, James? Doing great. Thank you for uh, interviewing me. Yeah, we're happy to have you. It looks like you'll be presenting the abstract titled Performance of European Society of Cardiology Zero and One Hour Algorithm in Patients with Known Coronary Artery Disease on Wednesday at the annual meeting. Can you tell me a little bit about this algorithm and about this project? Sure. This is a, a project that I've uh, been able to undertake with our, our chest pain cardiology researchers at Wake Forest. Um, it is a secondary analysis of the STOP chest pain trial, uh, where we're specifically looking at how the ESC01 uh, performs with patients with known coronary artery disease and those without. So what is this zero and one? Is it just as, uh, what is, can you tell me about the algorithm itself? Yeah, yeah the algorithm was developed in uh, Europe <clears throat> and they've had high sensitivity, high sensitivity troponins a lot longer than we have had in the U.S. And it's basically a troponin-only algorithm that you measure troponins as zero hours of the patient's visit and one hour. And based on how the scores are, the troponin levels, um, they're either ruled in, ruled out, or in an observation period. Um, this is different than what a lot of us are used to in the United States as far as having uh, a lot of times we use heart scores and heart pathway uh, so this is a troponin-only algorithm, and we wanted to see how it performed in a, a U.S. cohort, and that was the Stop Chest Pain trial. It was eight centers uh, in the U.S., and uh, this is a secondary analysis looking at how how this performs with folks with who have known CAD and folks who don't. Uh, so a really important step in seeing how uh, you know very important population for us. Uh, we have a lot of chest pain. We know it's a very high risk uh, issue for the patients and also for the providers as well. 
And we wanted to see that since we have so many patients who have known coronary artery disease, we want to see how does this uh, algorithm work for those patients in the U.S. specifically. Yeah, I could see how that zero and one hour would be really appealing just in terms of, you know, getting patients in and out quickly. Um, the heart pathway, you know, takes a little bit longer and um, you have to factor in other things, which um, can be hard to remember in the heat of the moment. So it seems appealing um, that it would be a pretty simple algorithm and quick, but obviously it would have to perform well for us to be able to incorporate it. So it'll be interesting to hear kind of what you guys found at the meeting. Um, did you have any challenges that you faced or things that you found surprising along the way? Well, the stop chest pain trial was <clears throat> done by Brandon Allen and Simon Mahler, and I uh, talked to them at length about uh, challenges that they had. And it definitely, when you have eight centers and 1,400 patients, uh, uh, kind of getting funding to to be able to perform that study is difficult. So that was one of the challenges. And uh, uh, Roche was able to uh, provide funding for the study, which was which is a good thing. Um, and also just, I think it was a little bit surprising how in the original trial, uh, it was surprising how the ESC-01 didn't have the same negative predictive value as it has had in other centers in, in Europe. So that was, that was a both, both surprising thing. So um, we obviously have a very diverse patient population in the United States, and that could be part of the explanation of why it didn't perform as well. Those probably are the main uh, challenges and surprises. Yeah, it makes you wonder if there are inherent differences in our population, you know, compared to the original uh, study. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for like a young researcher or um, junior faculty who might be considering this type of research project? Yeah, I have had a lot of different uh, steps in my career. I feel like initially when I came out of residency, I was just trying to figure out what I was doing. And then I had a focus on trying to teach people um, how to take care of patients. And I think over the last couple of years, being mid-career, I sort of started looking about how can I have a bigger effect on the patient population, not just the patients in front of me. And I just had an opportunity to join our cardiovascular research team with uh, Simon Mahler and uh, Jason Stapira. And it's it's been really a wonderful transition for me. Uh, I think that their work on chest pain is something I can see every day when I'm practicing in the ED, but also their work and focus on disparities um, has been a really um, inspiring thing. So I would say for new, new folks who are looking to get into research, which I still sometimes feel like I'm a, a new researcher, um, is finding a good team to work with, uh, finding good mentorship from those folks. And Simon always sort of tells everyone that you just really need to pick a focus and, and stick to it. And um, when we're applying for grants and, and looking uh, to get funding, it, it makes a lot of sense when you have a track record and you have expertise that you've developed over time and a team that has that expertise as well. So uh, that would be the advice uh, I would pass along. And that's really good advice because definitely like jumping back and forth between different topics and niche areas makes it really hard to um, get be successful in getting grant funding. Um, 
Sure. And there's so many good questions and so many interesting things. And I think it's part of being an emergency medicine doctor. Uh, part of the issue is you love everything. You, you're interested exactly. in so many different things. Um, so trying to focus and keep that focus is uh, something I'm going to continue to work on because I don't do it perfectly either. Right. And make it something that you really like too, so that you're not seeing it as, you know, a lot of work. Absolutely. Um, what are next steps for your team in this area? Well, next steps are definitely looking at further high sensitive, high sensitivity troponin, uh, looking at the heart pathway, uh, continuing to study ESC zero uh, one in different populations and uh, do more secondary analyses. Uh, and just really the next step is continuing to figure out how we can better take care of patients with chest pain, how we can equalize care and focus on our disparities that we know are a, a huge part of uh, medicine right now. Uh, so it's a, uh, it's a lot, but it's exciting and mm -hmm. it's definitely, uh, you know, knowing that you have a good team to work with is, is going to make it a lot easier and uh, fun to do. Well, I'm excited to see what is to come. And James, I really appreciate you joining me for this recording. And I'm excited to see your presentation at the annual meeting. And good luck. And very excited to see everyone in person. Yeah, thank you so much for including me. All right. Thanks. Welcome back. I'm Carly Easton, and I'm from the Virtual Presence Committee for SAM. For our next plenary abstract, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about healthcare disparities. I'd like to introduce Wesley Holland, a medical student at Yale School of Medicine. He just completed a research year this year and will be starting his last year of medical school and applying for EM residency this fall. Thanks for joining me, Wesley. All right. Thanks for having me. So it looks like you will be presenting the abstract titled Observed Disparities in Emergency Department Initiated Buprenorphine Across Five Healthcare Systems from the EMBED Pragmatic Trial on Wednesday at the annual meeting. First of all, congratulations on being a medical student and have your, having your abstract selected for plenary presentation. That's really cool. Good. Thank you. Can you give me a brief overview of uh, this project? Sure. So like the, the title says, it's a secondary analysis using data collected from the embed trial, which was a pragmatic group randomized trial evaluating the implementation of a clinical decision support system for initiating buprenorphine in discharge patients with OUD across 21 EDs and five states. Um, so the, the goal of this project is now that the trial is over, um, we were going to do the secondary analysis to see if there were racial and ethnic disparities, specifically in terms of buprenorphine initiation in the emergency department. Because there's been like, previous literature about disparities that are known to exist regarding OUD treatment in the outpatient setting, but there isn't really much information available right now regarding the disparities that exist specifically in the ED for buprenorphine initiation. That's really interesting. It seems like healthcare these kind of disparities are touching all aspects of emergency medicine. How did you and your team become interested in this area? So 
Uh, I initially started working in this area uh, when I joined my, my current PIs group when the embed trial was just about to start. I worked on the, the pilot study for that trial. Um, and then now that that's over, I'm uh, just kind of continuing work in this field. Uh, we have a good data set, it's large and across 21 sites. And it's not, it would be interesting to see if the disparities also exist in the ED like they do in outpatient settings because it's such a, uh, an important source of care for you know, underserved and marginalized populations that they oftentimes come there for OUD treatment because that's really the only place they have to go. Right, yeah, the ED is definitely the, um, the backbone of our healthcare system, especially for those populations. What challenges did your team face or did you face or what was surprising as you went along in this project? Um, so one thing that made the analysis difficult was that there was a lot of missing uh, racial and ethnicity data or one of the other, like sometimes there might, they might have a, a, their race listed in the EHR, but then they don't have ethnicity. And the way we categorized our data into four groups is like non-Hispanic black, non-Hispanic white, Hispanic and other. If they were missing either race or ethnicity, they were automatically grouped into the other group. So say if it was a white person with missing ethnicity data, they would still be grouped in the other group. Um, so that kind of was made things a little bit difficult to interpret. Um, and another thing that we kind of found surprising was that there wasn't actually a difference in racial disparity in the receipt of buprenorphine between community and academic sites, which we kind of expected that there would be, but that means that these disparities, even at an academic site, um, or just as bad as say like a rural community hospital. Yeah, and not to give away too many of your results, but it sounds like you did find a difference in um, ethnicity and race, racial um, prescribing of buprenorphine in your population overall. Yeah, yeah. And then one of the, the things like that we found specifically, I guess, was the, the big takeaway is that Specifically, non-Hispanic black patients were significantly less likely to receive deep in the ED compared to non-Hispanic white patients. Very interesting. So um, as a medical student going through research like this, do you have any advice for someone who might be considering this kind of path? Uh, find a good mentor, do your homework, work hard for them. I feel like that's been the key for me because I've been fortunate to have good mentors, both in undergrad and medical school. I agree. And um, I've asked this question of a couple other people, too. And um, finding a good mentor is really has been universally said among all of the interviewees um, on this podcast, because it's just so important. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks, Wes, for joining me for this interview. And I'm excited to see your plenary project presentation at the annual meeting. And um, thank you for joining us, and thank you for sharing this with the SAM community. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it.